So it's uh, Dr. Kara Cooney, uh-huh. uh, Egyptologist and professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. Uh-huh. Um, you're author of the books, When Women Ruled the World, Six Queens of Egypt, and The Woman Who Would Be King, uh, Hat Shep Suit, uh, Rise of Power in Ancient Egypt. Yeah, I had to write yeah. that out phonetically, so I said it. Uh, yeah. And you also uh, produced the um, television series Out of Egypt, uh, which aired in 2009 on Discovery Channel, but it's yeah. also available on Netflix and Amazon? Yeah. Cool. Um, how did you get involved in this career? I mean, what point in your life were you, were you first introduced to ancient Egypt? And at what point did you decide that that's the career path you wanted to go down? It, I, I always blame my mother, which is what we should all do, right? It's what we do <laughs> therapy. Um, and my mother has, I thought, had nothing to do with Egypt at all. Um, I'll come back to that in a bit because it, it will bring it full circle in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. But she came back from a work trip um, with my dad to London where she went to the British Museum and brought back a bunch of books. Um, four of them were about civilizations of the past. And there was a Vikings one, there was a medieval Europe one, there was an ancient Rome one, and there was an ancient Egypt one. And all of them were like children's books with like tiny pictures of people, you know, um, in, eating food or building houses or building pyramids or whatever. And Egypt was my favorite mm-hmm. out of all of those books. And she also brought me a book about mummies and, um, you know, for a child that hasn't seen death or been associated with death and an American child for whom death is very disassociated from life. It was something that I couldn't pull my eyes away from. And um, so if I'm going to blame my mother, I can also tell you that I have just found out that my mother's DNA test shows her to be 20% Middle Eastern North African. Really? And at least 5% of that is Coptic Egyptian. Wow. So there we are. I found out that in the end, I do have some Egyptian in there. After all, you can't tell, <laughs> but, but a little bit, a tiny, tiny but little you, bit. Of do you think that's almost like some um, ancestral or subconscious connection that you felt even you didn't even realize it on a conscious level? It's the funniest thing that an Egyptologist will never ask another Egyptologist why they are an Egyptologist, okay. because we know that it is the most... Um, emotional, non-answerable of questions. There's nothing we can really say. And yeah. I don't know, think of something you really love and people are like, why the hell do you love that? And you don't know <laughs> why, you don't know how to explain it to yourself. You just know you love it. Mm-hmm. And that's all I can say about ancient Egypt, that for some reason it it helps me to answer the crazy world around me by looking at the crazy ancient Egyptian world. So that's the way I approach so many things. I don't understand it myself. It's really strange. And you were specifically drawn to art and burial practices, like you were saying, mummies, and and those areas intrigued you more than others. Well, it, it's um, it's two part. I mean, I Egypt, I, I've always been attracted to the temples um, and the grandeur of statuary and things like that. But what Egypt preserves best are tombs and mummies and all of the furniture that they put in the tombs and the coffins and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in death and burial, then Egypt is the place for you. And so I I think that the two things kind of went, went hand in hand. It's not as interesting to be a part of, um, uh, to, to be an archeologist who's looking at cremation cultures, for instance, potentially, because it all gets condensed. How many times, 
have you been to Egypt? And what I know you've taken part in some archaeological archaeological digs. Um, and what were, were those projects involving and what were you looking for? And I've been going to Egypt um, since 1995. And that's um, either every year, twice a year, or when I had my son and Egypt had a revolution, I took about four years off going to Egypt. So there's been some breaks in between. I have no idea how many times I've been to Egypt in total. The longest I've spent in Egypt was about eight months um, working on, I won a fellowship and I and I went to Egypt to study the village of Dir al-Medina, which is in Western, uh, West Bank of Luxor. And it's a craftsman's village that housed all of the workmen who built and decorated the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. Oh, wow. And, um, and I, for that work, and that was when I was a graduate student in 1999, I went into a tomb um, filled with coffins and pottery and bodies and was in there by myself for like two weeks trying to document as many coffins as I possibly could. And there's still a whole lot of work that needs to be done. But that's, um, I, I took some photographs and now I'm leaving that to the people who work on site. I've also worked on... Uh, a pyramid complex site, the site of Dashur, and the pyramid complex of Simwastra III. And there I helped to organize the limestone fragments. I was only there for one season, and now that is um, in the very firm ownership and, and calm stewardship of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Dr. Peter Arnold. And he is um, publishing all of that material about the Middle Kingdom pyramid and the uh, the chapels and all of the pyramid, the little pyramids that were around the big king's pyramid. The trips that I'm doing right now um, in Egypt, I was there in 2016, 2018, um, 2019. I'll be back in Shana at the end of this year. But I go to work on uh, coffins of the 19th, 20th and 21st dynasties. And I'm looking at craftsmanship, how they're made, how they competed with each other socially with these objects. And then I'm also looking for reuse. So I'm looking at a time period of ex of extraordinary collapse, government collapse, mm -hmm. social collapse. And I'm looking at how wealthy people never abandon the idea of a coffin and using it as a means to show their power and wealth to other people. And instead of trying to find some other mechanism of burying their dead, they continue to bury their dead in coffins but simply took the coffins of their ancestors, took the bodies out, and then updated those coffins, replastered them, repainted them, and then used them for the people who had died just recently. Um, out of the coffins of the 20th and 21st dynasty that I've examined for reuse, I would say that 65% show evidence of reuse very clearly. And that's just with my own two eyes and a flashlight. So if I had the ability to scan these things for reuse, I think most of them would show evidence of reuse. Is that a way to honor their ancestors? Can they tell if that's their lineage or they know who's buried there? Or is it sacrilegious to remove the, the body from the coffin? I mean, you're asking a million dollar question and it's not an easy thing for me to answer. It's This is tough, but it seems that number one, it's something the Egyptians wanted to veil. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't have covered up the old decoration. They, they wanted to show new decoration for the most part. So it was something that was that was problematic for them. There's even this uh, ghost story that's preserved that talks about a, 
a man, a ghost who is haunting this man, a priest, until he gives him a coffin set. So this is a ghost that has no coffin set to go back to, and he's haunting this priest until the priest is like, how do I get you to go away? Here's a coffin set, and then the, the dude finally stops haunting him. So there is a lot of consternation over this practice. However, when you talk about a way of honoring your ancestors, I think that there is something to that, because there are um, two coffins that I know of that retain, at least, that retain the name of another family member. And in both cases, there are females who are reusing female coffins. And there's one coffin in the Met, that's the coffin for those of you that follow along who know about Egyptian stuff, Tabechnet, and then reused by her daughter, Nani. It's a mother-daughter set and a mother-daughter reuse. And they leave the mother's name on, on the sides, and they only reuse and reinscribe on the front for the daughter. So I do think that it's a way of honoring the ancestors and, and showing people, yeah, I know I'm reusing my mother's coffin. Or the family is saying, yes, we know we're reusing the mother's coffin, but now it's connecting mother and daughter in the same container. So if, all of the above. And you were mentioning yeah. that one of the areas that you were uh, investigating, there was multiple coffins. If there's multiple coffins, is that a lesser class of people that are buried together or... Because the pharaohs had their own units, right? That the, like mausoleum pyramids and yeah. I mean, the the kings are buried in very special tombs with very special funerary architecture and and objects. But every rich person wanted to have a nesting coffin set, like a set of nesting Russian dolls, coffin inside a coffin inside a coffin. So you have three layers of protection or six layers of protection or for Tutankhamun and a king, nine layers of protection, which is three times three, plurality times plurality, which is an infinite protection. Yeah. Um, but you should also be aware that I think that only 5% of ancient Egyptians would have had a coffin at all. Wow. Most ancient Egyptians would not have had access to such a thing. And um, that's... You can't get more exclusionary in your religious practice than that to, to tell people or to show people through your rituals that they're not going to get mummified and last in your body like they will, that you're not going to get a transformational device like a coffin like they will. And so it's, um, it's it, as unequal a social inequality as you can possibly imagine that the haves versus the have-nots get immortality physically. And the have-nots get what? We don't even know because they're not literate. They're not writing things down. And so we don't have a real understanding of how the poor felt about this social inequality. I want to ask you about that because it was depicted in the art as well. The different, uh, I guess, classes of people, right? Were they depicted yep. in different colors? In, is that accurate? Um, Egypt is a place that has a variety of skin tones. It's in Africa. It's in North Africa and in Egypt today, and I have to assume in Egypt of yesterday, as you went from North to South, skin shades would have gotten increasingly darker. Um, I do like to say that if an ancient Egyptian found him or herself in Alabama in 1954, that person would have had to sit at the back of the bus um, in an American system. These are people of color. And I think most African-Americans would consider them black Americans. And, and I agree, that's, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that within Egypt there aren't, just as there are within African-American uh, value systems of skin color, that, I'm not saying that within Egypt there wasn't an evaluation of what was 
better or worse, darker or lighter skin color, but it's often turned on its head in a way that we don't expect. For Americans, um, having built our society on chattel slavery and thinking of dark skin or black skin is inherently of less value than white skin, for the ancient Egyptians, they stereotyped Libyans with lighter skin or people of Northwest Asia, um, Near Easterners with lighter skin, and their darker skin was preferable. So skin shade, it's not black or white, right. but it's still valued in, in particular ways. And then, of course, the Egyptians stereotyped the Nubian people and the Sudanese people with a darker skin than themselves. So the sweet spot for the Egyptians was to be Egyptian with that uh, North African phenotype, and then everyone else was was non-Egyptian. Um, but they did not, within their own culture that I can see, determine more or less value based on lighter or darker skin color. That's an interesting point. So you can't say, oh, you know, like in modern India or modern Mexico, that people with darker skin color are considered of, of lower social status and people of lighter skin color in a colonial reality have higher social status. It wasn't like that in ancient Egypt. It's not quite so simple. Was it even that people that worked in in the pyramids or indoors were depicted with lighter skin and people that worked outdoors? The Egyptians showed us exactly what you're saying, but through gender. So in statuary, it's very common to depict a man with a dark red skin that's colored with a natural pigment called red ochre and to show the female with a yellow ochre skin. And the assumption is not that the males and females belong to different classes or different um, phenotype groups. I mean, they can't, they're all Egyptians, but that the males are the ones that are outside and under the sun and active parts of society and thus their skin gets darker and the females are meant to be inside. And you see that in different cultures around the world that, that you know, when, you, when you're in California, you live in Las Vegas, I'm here in Mar Vista, and you see um, women with the face shields on, you know, with the hats on and the big visors and all that stuff because, but then you would see other women getting, you know, younger generation all interested in their tan. I'm always shielding myself from the sun because I, I worry about wrinkles and things like that. I'm not worried about um, my social status. Right. But social status and skin color is make or break for certain um, ethnic groups within the United States. And people get that. What is that cream that has lead in it? Um, fair and lovely um, that that actually does lighten your skin, but at great uh, detriment to your health. These are, this is the kind of thing that, though they didn't have a fair and lovely cream in ancient Egypt, I can imagine the rich Egyptian woman or the woman who wanted to be perceived of as rich and wanting to be a woman of her household tried to stay out of the sun as much as possible to get that status. The Book of the Dead, which was the, the guide for the souls to enter the afterlife, that, that was primarily on papyrus, right? Scrolls? Yeah, Book of the Dead could be painted in um, in a pen or or a brush onto papyrus, ancient Egyptian paper, or you could put the Book of the Dead onto the sides or insides of a coffin, or you could put the Book of the Dead onto a tomb burial chamber or a tomb chapel wall. So there were many places to put images from the Book of the Dead. Um, Valley of the King's tombs have images and texts from the Book of the Dead, and I bet I could find 
some Book of the Dead uh, text and scenes on temple walls as well. So it, it's not something that's only on papyrus. It's in all kinds of places. Uh, um, in the later um, civilization or the later years of the Egyptian civilization, um, were the was the Book of the Dead given to other classes as well on papyrus? This is tricky. I would I would argue... I would argue that the Book of the Dead is something that is controlled and maintained by the wealthy 5% or less in ancient Egypt. These are the people that can read and write. Most ancient Egyptians would have been illiterate and not participating in that type of underworld ritual and belief system. And it's even possible that the 95% of normal Egyptians, peasant Egyptians, had a parallel but different underworld belief system. And when archaeologists find those bodies that weren't buried in wooden coffins but were buried in palm rib mats or without any coffins at all, they're often in a fetal position facing the rising or the setting sun towards the east or the west or with a head pointing towards the sun in a cardinal direction, um, often with other family members. It's not. I'm not trying to say that poor people didn't have access to the afterlife, but that poor people may have had a, a different understanding of what that afterlife was all about. But I think one of the main drivers in the world today, as well as yesterday, is social inequality, um, maintaining one's place in society. Um, I think that the ancient Egyptians perfected that social inequality and the, the rich competing with one another in terms of objects, and they took it to the nth degree in that that social inequality went all the way into the afterlife so that the poor people didn't have access to these secret texts that gave you the cheat sheet for how to get through this gate and that gate and what to say to the God when he answers this or that. Mm -hmm. I will say something really cool. If you're in the South, in Egypt, um, in Luxor, or around in a very traditional society, one of these very conservative societies, and one of your family members dies in a peasant community, you will invite a sheikh, a, a holy Muslim man, to come to your funeral and to do a whole ritual for the dead. And in Egypt, and in Egypt only, this Muslim sheikh will have all kinds of incantations and ritual phrases that go all the way back to ancient Egypt, in which he says something like, when you see the snake god and he asks you this, you must yeah. say that. And when you see this divinity with a head of fire, then you have to say this. And that sheikh speaks to the dead person, like giving them instructions for what they need to do when they get into the next life. So I say that these things weren't available to the poor people, but they're available to the poor people now in Egypt. So maybe they were, but they were just verbalized. Or you had to go to a priest and you had to give him what money you had so that the priest who knew how to write it all down could come to your funeral and say these things to the dead. Even if they couldn't bring the document into the burial with them, they could have the information in some way. I, I have some questions that I broke out into art and burial sort of categories, but just going off that, um, the, there was a God, there's a God, is it a, uh, Amen? Um, the, the God? Yeah. Yeah. Amen or Amun. Yeah. And did he, or did she or, what I'm not sure what he uh, at some point merged with Ra. Yeah. And there's, I was reading that. I don't know how true it is, but I was hoping to ask you this. Um, so in the, in the Christian religion, when you say amen, is there some kind of parallel to that? 
because I was reading there, this. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just um, reading that there were some parallels between, and you were saying the Muslim religion with the with the burial or the death rite would they read uh, towards some the end of someone's life but also in the christian religion i don't know if um horus was was there some parallels between him and jesus um okay. you're asking um two big questions and they're great questions I, I love them so let's start with the first one the amen ray or amun ray um does not have a connection to the hebrew amen they're different uh phonetics and they i'm not saying that the languages weren't connected because they were. Egyptian language was Afro-Asiatic. Uh, that means it's part of West Asia and part of African and has both um, language families involved in it. Um, but that th those words are different. And the god Amun-Re, Amun, the god Amun is one of the gods of pre-creation. Pre-creation was eternal darkness, chaos, darkness and infinity and hiddenness and amun is hiddenness so it's what cannot be seen what is all around you and cannot be cannot be seen and for hiddenness to then syncretize with the sun god that is always visible was a typical egyptian thing to do so you take one god the hidden one and another god the visible sun god and you put them together and it makes this super god that that can do anything he can be hidden and visible at the same time and so Amun-Re became the king of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon and the Egyptian understanding. And Amun-Re also became the king of the gods because he was the god of the birthplace of the kings. So in the 11th dynasty, kingship arose from the city of Thebes. And Amun was, he found his, his um, main temples in the city of Thebes. So when the kings rose up, then they said, oh, now that I am king, the god of my home city is the king of all the gods. And everyone's like, yes, sir. And they started to build temples for the god Amun-Re ev everywhere. The way I like to look at it as an Egyptologist is so many Egyptologists think that the religion comes first and the people come second because that's the way it's sold to us. That's the way I was brought up as a Roman Catholic. That's the way you think that it works. That's not the way it works. The people and the politics comes first. The religion comes second. We just get confused as to how it works. But the political reality created this god, Amun-Re. Now, the, the second thing that you've asked is how much ancient Egyptian religion fed into Christianity. And there, I mean, books have been written about this. It's a very interesting subject. And I'll give you uh, two examples that I think you'll be able to see pretty easily. First is the image of the mother and child the image of the child sitting on the mother's lap and the mother there is caretaker, either nursing that child or just holding him on her lap. This is a typical Horus and Isis image. The, the mother who protects a, a son who is marked for power but is not quite ready for it yet. This is the Virgin Mary and her son, Jesus, right? The Christ child on her lap. And you see it depicted again and again. And I am sure and others are sure that... Um, the Christian, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, and its uh, or the Coptic Egyptian Church, and its depictions of mother and child are inspired by ancient Egyptian depictions of Isis and Horus and other mother-child divine imagery and other um, goddess-king divine imagery. Because when the king is shown on the lap of his mother, the goddess Isis, it's the same thing. So then if you call Jesus king of the Jews, it all connects with, with the ancient Egyptian 
belief system that king is divinity and divinity is king. So those, those two things fit very well. And then the second example I would give you is the idea of a virgin birth. There's only one book of the Bible, and I believe it's Luke, that talks about the virgin birth and that talks about the Jesus birth story. And I believe Luke is also one of the latest Gospels. I'll have to look. Um, the Luke that I read uh, was in Coptic Egyptian. So Luke is written in the latest form of the ancient Egyptian language. And it it makes sense to me that this idea of a God creating himself, this is very Egyptian. So I'm going to get pretty sexy. Are you, are you ready for this sexual discussion? Okay. <laughs> You're just nodding. So I'm going to go. <laughs> the, the ancient Egyptians didn't believe in a mother creator goddess. They believed in a father creator God. Okay. They saw the beginnings of the world in a very sexual way. And they saw the create the beginnings of the world as the God creating an orgasm with his own body. So it is a masturbatory big bang that creates the world for the first time. Hmm. And God, when, and, and Amun is a part of this, but there's this God named Atum who is floating around in darkness, infinity, um, uh, hiddenness. He's just, he's floating around in this, in this primeval matter. And he has sex with himself to create himself. And he manifests his own physicality for the first time. This is the miracle of new life for the ancient Egyptians. And that means that creation comes from the masculine sexual spark. And they reify this again with the god Osiris, who when he's killed by his brother Seth, dismembered and his sister Isis binds him back together into the first mummy, there are images, like cartoon images, that go from scene to scene to scene that show Osiris dead as a mummy. And then Osiris's phallus raising up. And then Osiris's hand reaching out to, to his penis. And then the moment when he's able to lift himself back up because he's reborn, he's recreated himself. So that's an idea of the god recreating himself. The sun god Ray is also thought to recreate himself. Every evening he sets in the west and he dies. But when he dies, he enters into the mouth of his mother Newt and she swallows his future incarnation. And she is the vessel that is going to pass, he's going to pass through her body and then he will be born from her on the eastern horizon the next morning. But he's created his own future self with his own sexuality. So there is an understanding, there's, there's an actual God called Amen Kamutaf, which is Amen, bull of his mother. Now you think about what that means. Okay. That's the, right? That's yeah. the Amen who has sex with his own mother to create himself. To create himself. Wow. It, bull of his mother, right? <laughs> kind of creepy. Yeah. But it's also that miracle of how divinity can be recreated from death, from nothingness, from pre-creation. And so the idea of the God, it, this is very Egyptian, this virgin birth. It seems ridiculous and it's all about sex being bad, but it's not that. It's about the God being all powerful and being able to create himself so that you don't need a man to have sex with Mary. She is a virgin. It is proven that it is God who, who created himself. And that is the most Egyptian story you can possibly get. And um, I, I argue that it's, it, it was created in Egypt. Um, 
I think you would want to look to Elaine Pagels and other scholars who might talk about this more in gospels and texts that are written in Coptic to be able to really make a better circumstantial case for that. But there's a lot of Christianity that, that comes hmm. from Egyptian religious uh, origins. That's interesting, all the parallels. Um, but just to clarify, um, Amen is not, that. that is not as far as you, you're concerned. They're, those are two different Two different things. Yeah. And so the Amen is a, is a Hebrew invocation to the God to to show a belief in a prayer. And the um, Amen is a, it is a different God. And they are different phonetics. Um, so the connections are not there. When you write them out in English and you don't have these different phonetics for an Ayin or an Aleph, and see, you know, you're like, wait, what do you mean? We, we don't have these different vowel sounds that are vocalized. Like in Arabic, if you're going to say an ayin, it's an ah in the back of your throat. Or an olive is more of an ah. And we just have the letter A. Mm. Um, so when you write these things in an anglicized form and you just use the letter A, it doesn't, it doesn't give you the differentiation. But if you're looking at the ancient text, you're like, oh, yeah, that's written with the reed leaf, that amen. It's written with the... the um, the i sound, so it would have been semi-vocalized, and it's different from what you would see in the in the Hebrew text. Has the Catholic Church ever commented on this, as far as you know, or have they added any input? I haven't looked to see if there's any official response from the Catholic Church or teachings about the origins or um, inspiration for some of these ideas about Jesus. If I were going to Look, I, I mean, I imagine there are some theologians and thinkers who have gone in these directions. It's mm. not that crazy yeah. that religions claim other religions. Um, it happens all the time that instead of sweeping the old religion away, you you claim it, you keep it, you take it. Like the Pantheon in Rome, that that the Pantheon was turned into a church, but when it was built. By the ancient Romans, it was built as a temple to all the gods, and it was an ancient Roman temple. When Christianity took over and the Roman emperors took it on as their state religion, then that place became a church and they converted that. So much so that they even took a statuary and recarved that statuary. A statue of an elite woman became a Virgin Mary, um, for example, and you can see the recarving. So there, there's all kinds of ways of claiming sacred space. E even um, the Catholic Church's claims of pyramids in Mexico, there's the famous pyramid of Cholula, which is the biggest pyramid, I think, in the world, though it's not made of stone, it's made of earth. But it's still the biggest one. And on top of that, giant hill of earth is a church. And so you claim the sacred space. In Mexico City, Templo Mayor, is, it was the Aztec temple. And what did what happened when the Spanish colonized it? They they put their cathedral right on top of it. So all of these sacred spaces you want to you want to claim them and then demonize other things. You know, there, it's no surprise to me that the devil invented uh, around the time period that um, polytheism is thought to be bad. That the devil is depicted with horns and um, associated with goats or with bulls, because you are trying to make demonic the polytheistic um, divinities that people have worshiped for so long, bull gods, goat gods, um, the god Amun-Re is a goat god, the god Baal is a bull god. I mean, that's what you want to make. You want to other it and, and demonize it. And um, 
and but then claim the other parts of the the divinity for your this new religion, this new Christianity. Hmm. Um, getting into some of the art uh, that they had in ancient Egypt, I mean, where does this hybrid animal human idea come from? A lot of the gods are depicted where, like with like wolf or bird type masks that they wear, and there's the Sphinx, of course. I mean, do, do we know any of the origins of how these things started? Origins are so hard because the Egyptians are always going to veil the, or any religion, really, not just the Egyptians, but any religion is meant to keep people in power and meant to maintain power. When it becomes not a, not a spiritual system, but a religion, a religion is about power. And if you pull the curtain away and you show people, oh, this came from this and that came from this and this is that you're not going to parse it out. You're not going to give little annotations for how everything happened. You're going to say that this came from the gods and it's a miracle and thus maintain your power in that way. So we know very little about how you get a sphinx. You know, how is that developed? Why the Egyptians were so into having a crocodile headed man God, you know, or um, I, I was just doing some consulting work for somebody in Hollywood because I'm in LA and they were like, we need a female bird-headed, you know, bird-headed female goddess. I'm like, well, the Egyptians, you know, it's interesting. They didn't have a bird-headed female divinity. They have male bird-headed humans. That's Horus or Ray Harakti. But when they showed a female with an animal head on top, it's a lioness or a cat. But you don't see a bird head. You will see a falcon that's all... Um, but it's all falcon. It's not part female and part animal. And who, who comes up with these rules? But the Egyptians follow it, and they mm. follow it quite traditionally. But I'm not sure I can get to the, the very origins of it. What I will say is that the ancient Egyptians, they were deeply, intimately connected with their geography and saw everything around them as sacred. Every animal, every uh, element associated with their river, the desert, the sky, the sun, the wheat, all of it was sacred. No, that's not to say that the Navajo don't think the same thing or that, that uh, the Indian subcontinent doesn't do the same thing. But the ancient Egyptians, they, they physicalized that. So they would take these, these animals and they would put together human and animal in very interesting ways that you don't see in much of the uh, in much of the other polytheistic religions around the world i think indian hinduism probably comes the closest where you see these anthropomorphized elephants you know like the god ganesh um or other animals that are anthropomorphized so it, it, it comes pretty close um but this idea of taking parts and putting them together that is particularly Egyptian, and I can't tell you why that is. The Egyptians understood magic, and they understood the reification of something. Like, how do you think something and make it happen? You have to bring the parts of it together in a particular way. You have to follow the right rules. Like, I suspect that you grew up Roman Catholic like I did. Yes. If you go to Mass, right, and you're mm -hmm. at the Mass, and you have to do the communion in the right order in the right way. Or the body of Christ will not be the body of Christ. You just have a piece of leavened bread, unleavened bread, and it doesn't really do that, right? Mm -hmm. You have to do the magical ritual with the incense and the stuff and all the right invocations in the right way. Mm -hmm. Egyptians believe this for 
spoken ritual, but they also believed it for visualized images, which means that everything that they wrote, every image that they created had to be done in a particular way. So, you know, the, the Bengal song, Walk Like an Egyptian? Yeah, of course. The Bengals actually had an ancient uh, historian as a part of that band. And, and so when they do the walk, like it, they knew what they were talking about. But this idea of the head in profile, the chest full frontal, mm. both arms being visible and then the legs in profile, you know, the weird way that Egyptians are shown to walk. That is because the Egyptians believe the symbol of the head is that profile head. That is the symbol. That is what will reify a head. The symbol of the chest has to be full frontal. So that's what will reify a chest. So you put the head together with the chest, together with the legs. It's like symbol, 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 symbol. You have a person. If you don't do it that way and you depict the individual like an Italian contrapposto, you know, like all like a model, like one leg back with perspective, you can have a weird one-legged bizarre person that will be reified in your magical reality and it's not going to work. So that's the way you have to depict a human being. That's also the way you want to depict the powers of a, of a god. So if your god has the fierceness of a crocodile that can snatch a child from the riverbank, that has this violent power to destroy, but you want to claim that power and make it in protection and service of humanity. You take that crocodile head and you put it onto that human Egyptianized body and you put those two things together and now you have made a crocodile that will work for human beings. You can do that with hippos, you can do that with lions, you can do that with anything. And you can turn what is fierce and scary into something that is, um, that, that is claimed by the ancient Egyptians. The Egyptians were very good at taking the most frightening parts of their natural world and using them, claiming them, taming them, and making them something that served their power structure and, and served their religious um, structure. The, the art um, was not, because what we think of art today is things that you hang on the wall that that add beauty to your home or to your office or whatever, but their, their art was more of sort of necessity, right? To tell a story, to tell their uh, history, to tell their thoughts on religion. It was not something that was created for like fun or, or, you know, for uh, creative purposes. You know, we have these crazy ideas that modern art is not functional. All art is functional. It's all functional. It's just that ancient Egyptian art or Hindu art or medieval art is more obviously functional. If you put art in a religious space or in a tomb space, you know, it's for it's for some sort of ritual to connect to the dead ancestors or some offering you're going to give to the divinities. And so we can see it more clearly. But if if I have purchased a Warhol, <laughs> it's just as functional to my social status and where I hang it, or if I give it to a museum, it's just as functional to my own to my own actual um, capitalist American life. It's, it's still there, but it, it may not be functional in a, a ritual sense, right? Um, but every bit of ancient Egyptian art was meant to create a reality, maybe an alternative reality, an ideal reality, but something that was greater than the base human life that, that we all have, meant to elevate it in some way. And if you're going to compare it to anything, um, you can compare it to the Sistine Chapel, you know, you can compare it to, Sistine Chapel's perfect. Mm -hmm. How many people got to go into that space? Very few. Mm -hmm. Elites, 
and really important priests, like the people at the top of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And yet that's where they put their best artists, spent the most money, and really got the best bang for their buck. Um, it's a place that people die to go into today, right? And if you've been in there and you've seen this painting, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And it is exclusive. It is a place that very few people were able to see when it was made. And people would talk about, and did you know Michelangelo did this? And then he painted that. And then they added these tapestries and mm. da, 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 and people talk. And the fact that people cannot see it, that most people cannot, is as much a power of that art as anything else. But then the the ritual functionality of it, the Roman Catholics would say, oh, no, no. Just because there's an image of Jesus there does not mean that that's what's making Jesus come into our space. It's the ritual that we do and the belief that we have and the faith that we have that makes Jesus come into the space or God come into the space. But the ancient Egyptians believe that if you depict the divinity in a particular way, name him correctly, put the right things up there in hieroglyphic language, it did invite the God into the space. So it's more functional and magical than than we can possibly imagine. In the Sixteen Chapel, as you were saying, like you know that Michelangelo did various paintings, or um, but in in the pyramids, there's no attribution, right? We don't know who any of the artists are. We don't like, and the there's not like they put their initials on the bottom or something. Well, Michelangelo didn't put his initials on the bottom either. Okay, and it, you know, two thousand years from now, we're redigging up the Sistine Chapel, and we've lost all of the texts that talk about Michelangelo. Mm. It might be hard for us to figure out who actually painted that. Even though his self-portrait is in there, we wouldn't necessarily know this. You know, it's it's hard to see. Um, it, it, I study artisans and um, or artists, and it's true they don't get to sign their work, but I guarantee you, they found a way of telling people and showing people who made what and creating a reputation such that they would get more commissions and get more work. And I guarantee you, rich people will fall, were falling all over themselves to get the right guy. Mm. Oh my God, look at her coffin, that's so nice. I wanna get the guy who did that coffin. Um, that kind of thing would have happened all the time. But signed work, you know, again, if art is functional, and art for us today functions in a <laughs> capitalist, um, a social competitive way, the name of the artist is the seller. That's the thing, the right. authenticity of that. Do you have a Da Vinci? Do you have a Rembrandt? Do you have a Warhol? That's what we need to know. And if that's what it is, then, then the, for us, the signature is everything. For the ancient people, the signature was not everything. It wasn't the primary focus, um, but I'm sure they talked about it. I'm sure they verbalized it, but mm. didn't... Um, didn't allow it to be a part of the art itself. So this work was primary or all the time commissioned and the artist would come with their paint and chisel or whatever tools that they used. And, um, which are amazing because they, they stand at the test of time for thousands of years, but then someone would dictate the information to them that they wanted. Commissions are difficult. I mean, I guess it would be like the kind of art that the commissioner gets to really be a part of. We're creating visuals all the time. We don't always call something art, but if a commissioner, like some really rich person wants to get a portrait done, photograph, they go to Annie Leibovitz, what's the conversation like for the very rich person with Annie Leibovitz? Right. Should we go to the beach? I think I wanna be in my office. I wanna be shown this way. I wanna be strong. I wanna right. be vulnerable. I, I'm gonna, I wanna be young and set, whatever. 
but there's still that conversation about how they want to be depicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have your your super interior designer, you know, you're creating a visual space of what you want your room to look like. Um, and we we laugh about it as being gauche when somebody wants to buy a painting and they want to buy a blue painting, right? And everyone's like, oh, they don't understand the value of art. But that is what art is. That's how art is commissioned. Um, that's how it was commissioned by from Michelangelo by a, a pope, you know. I want it to fit into this space. I need to be like this. And when they painted Jesus and Mary naked, when Michelangelo painted Jesus and Mary naked in the Sistine Chapel, it was there was hell to pay. People were freaking out. They're like, you can't do that. And Michelangelo's like, why not? They came into the world naked like me. These are their bodies. It's fine. And the next Pope or the Pope after that, I can't remember. I'd have to look, put little veils all over Jesus and Mary veils that have not been removed from their naked bodies to this day, because we still don't want Jesus to be naked. Hmm. So there's always a back and forth commission um, process and negotiation. Artisans do not ever get to do whatever they want. Um, Again, it's confusing for us because some of the artists that are considered so great and so amazing, a Warhol or um, a Kandinsky or somebody who's splattering paint all over or a Banksy, you know, they're being anti-authoritarian. They're not listening to anyone. They're doing what they want. And thus, we think that that was always what was valued, that the artist gets to have the only say. Mm -hmm. But that is not the way that art works. Um, Art is always going to be a, a conversation, a debate between the person who values it, commissions it in a sense, and the person who is making it. And that's why we call artists sellouts, right? Mm-hmm. So when the artist is then pleasing the marketplace and pleasing the commissioner and giving people what they want, then we who value art for its um, for its envelope-breaking ability and its anti-authoritarianness and screw-the-man kind of message, then we're like, oh, the artist is a sellout. Now we don't want that artist anymore. And you push that artist aside, move on to the next person. But in the ancient world, it would have been a different kind of conversation. It just depends on what's valued. And you made a good analogy with the 16th Chapel and the limited amount of people that were able to go in there and look at the art. But it was the same for the Egyptian art, right? It was not intended to be looked at by mass audiences. It was, I don't think, was nobody supposed to see it? It was just uh, just the, this is the question that I actually can't give you a definitive answer to. And I can tell you that if you went to a bar with a bunch of Egyptologists at a conference, and you asked this question, you would start, you would hear arguments immediately because we don't agree. And I think it actually changes through time, the exclusivity of the temples. The main thing I can tell you is that the temple was not a place where everyone was welcome. This is not a place of prayer and faith to bring in um, the, the, the people to come to the shepherd, right? And to feel safe. This is a place that is the home of the God. It is meant to be kept safe and secure, not for people, but for the God to be able to remake himself every night. So that story I told you about of the God sexually creating himself and making his own body and then making the world after that, the ancient Egyptians actually believed that that creation event happened not only every season with the rebirth of Osiris, every Egyptian spring, but every day with the new rising sun, that every day the sun died and had to remake himself. So if you have a temple dedicated to the sun God in any way, that temple had to make sure that God was kept safe so that he could recreate himself every single day. 
that's a lot of responsibility <laughs> to put on people. And I don't want to tell you that the Egyptians were so naive as to think that if they didn't build their temple, the sun god wouldn't be able to remake himself. But they did believe that if the they didn't build the temple right, the sun god wouldn't remake himself in a way that served the people, that served humanity. And so the temple was this ground zero for pulling divinity into a human space. And it had to be done right. And you cannot mess with that. So that means you have to keep the profane, unclean masses out. The temple's got to be kept secure, sacred, and safe. There are walls around this space. Those walls are meters thick. This needs to be a space in which only the initiated, and the sanctified are allowed in, particularly in those back spaces where the God is actually recreating himself. Only the highest of priests and priestesses could go into that back space. Otherwise, I would say that for most of Egyptian history, up to the eight, end of the 18th dynasty, this will be around 1320 BCE. I think most of the time temples were for only very high elites and everyone else had to go around back and worship in a shrine somewhere and, and they could not go in. I think that once the Ramesid kings took over in the 19th dynasty, starting with Ramses the first, going on to Seti the first, and then Ramses the second, a kind of religious populism came about in which the, the chief priest, which is the king in the Egyptian system, realized they needed to invite more people into their temple spaces to get the the buy-in of their kingship that they needed. And so when the Ramesses built their temples, adding on to the temples that already were, they, they built giant courtyards, but they also built hypostyle halls that included images of, there's a hieroglyph called the Rehit bird, which is the bird of the common people. And they have this image of the common people repeated all around the great hypostyle hall of Ramses II and his father Seti I. And I suggest that this new populism meant that people were allowed to go into parts of the Egyptian temple that they were not allowed to go into previously. But if you want to think of it simply, you could say the back parts of the temple are the most sacred, mm -hmm. the places you really have to keep like a, a, a bubble. And the front parts, the open air parts, are the places where more people are allowed to go. The places that aren't covered over by a roof, more more people can go. The places that are covered over, you got to watch out. Now it's enclosed, and you're you're it's your force field. You got to keep people out. Was there more um, confidential information in the back? Was it was there other things? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yes, yeah. So the yeah, there were more. Um, I mean, remember that the Catholic Church didn't allow the Eucharist to be performed in front of people without a screen until Vatican II in the 60s, oh. right? <laughs> so, and church was always in Latin. The mass was always in Latin. What did, it, what did it mean? You didn't know it was in Latin, but it was in God's language. It had to be in Latin. And then the Eucharist itself was behind this screen and the priest was had his back turned to you. It wasn't for you. It was for the God. It was it was for the, the divine human interaction, but the priest was the interlocutor. The people were there witnessing it, but only three steps removed. And it wasn't for us to, to actually be a part of. Um, very similar sort of thing. So in the, if uh, it is a very new and unusual thing to have the Bible written in languages that people can understand. In the ancient Egyptian uh, texts, 
most of their religious texts are written in very formal language that very few people could have understood, even if they heard it. And if they saw it, most of them couldn't read. And the more secret a text was, yes, the farther in the back of the temple it was. So there are all, there's all kinds of crazy shit in the back of Egyptian temples where you're like, what is this weird ritual text? And the craziest shit is, of course, in the Valley of the King's Tombs where you're like, you look at some of this imagery and it is just beyond bizarre. Um, is there like the, an example? God, like um, there's, um, there's a wonderful image of a naked child body or no, sorry, sorry. It's not a child. It's a, it's a man's body and it's naked. And he's got, he's in profile and he has a divine beard and all around him are images of a red sun disc. And they're at different stations around his body. And he has an erect penis and that penis is spewing out semen. And from that semen is a tiny little child of his future self. And it also has an image of fire. And so it's showing the sun God. It's like a a condensation of the entire 12 hours of night and all of the trials and tribulations that the sun God has to go through to recreate himself condensed into this one visual with hardly any text that shows the different stations of the sun and, um, and his sexual recreation of himself. Just, you look at it and you're like, Whoa, that's, that's intense. That's crazy. Um, what about obelisks? Obelisks? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They are prevalent here. I mean, the Washington Monument. And w- was that uh, Cleopatra when she had a relationship with Caesar, right? Is, and they took a lot of the obelisks. Am I saying that correctly? Obelisks? Ob- obelisks. You're right. Uh, out of Egypt to Rome and to other places. Um, and so that is a, it's like a petrified sun ray. Is that the... Oh, I love it. Yes. I'm going with petrified sun. Okay. I think you're at that point. Yeah. Um, and what, I mean, what are they saying? Like what's, um, wh- why were they, why were they creating these giant towers basically? Yeah. Monoliths, so when, right? Monoliths. Yeah, yeah, they are monoliths. They are meant to be one piece of stone. The first obelisk, the Ben Ben stone may have actually been a meteoric piece of stone, like um, something with a, a metal in it. Um, not preserved, but in the shape of a, a pyramid of some kind. Um, when we look at obelisks, we think of the religion first and the politics second. And I want you to turn it on its head and remember that even though there was this meteoric uh, pyramidal shaped stone that maybe was in the shape of an obelisk of some kind, and it seems of the natural world, that doesn't mean it comes from the, d- the divine heavens first. Kings claimed this. Kings claim this obelisk stone is a symbol of their ability to create miracles on earth because the obelisk is a petrified sunbeam, as, as you put it, um, is in, in 10 stories tall, one piece of stone. If a king wow. can do that, a king is the son of the God. He is the son, the son of Ray himself, right? So he can make the religious connection, but it's always about power. And it's about the power of kingship. So it is no surprise to me that the obelisk is a means of maintaining power for the pharaoh in Egypt. It is then taken over by Roman emperors who cannot call themselves king because they don't want a king in Rome. But they're still kings. They're just calling themselves Caesar or some weird martyr made up name that's, you know, king but not. And they take all these obelisks and start putting them up. And you have Hadrian and connecting to Egypt. So they're king but not king, right? 
And then you see who, who takes over the obelisks next. You see the Roman Catholic Church claiming those obelisks. There's one in the, the Vatican right in front of um, St. Peter's Cathedral. And then who takes the obelisk after that? You've got the Washington Monument. Um, I don't remember when it was finished, but it's going to be 19th century. It's going to be rather late. And who else has taken the obelisk? You've got the pyramid on our money, but you also have the Jim Crow statuary, the Confederate statues from the American South, many of which use that obelisk. So that obelisk immediately evokes a strong authoritarian power that cannot be overturned, at least not easily. And that is something to which we are very attracted when we are in power and that we want to communicate in a, in a one-stop manner, just use that obelisk. And so you see people claiming this over and over again, but it's no surprise that there are more obelisks in Rome than there are in Egypt. Um, and there is an obelisk in Istanbul. There's obelisks. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're claimed. There's one in Paris. There's one in London. There's one in New York. Those are the real Egyptian ones, right, that are taken by colonialists and then moved as symbols of power to show that they can do that into parks, into places that they built for their upper middle class elites. And the obelisk is a symbol of power par excellence because we continue to understand it as such. Uh, on some of the Egyptian obelisks, is there like a, um, a a language, a hieroglyphic uh, text that you see repeated or are they all different or are they? They're all different and the texts are not as interesting as you would think. Generally, the texts are all about, I mean, I want you to do this. I want you to think of the obelisk as a king's erection. Okay, that's, <laughs> I don't think it's that great. Yeah, no, right? it's pretty obvious. It, yeah, it's so it's a phallic symbol. It's this giant monolith. Um, and the whole thing is covered with the king's name. So it's just like king's name, king's image, king's name. And remember, the king has five names, all kinds of epithets and all kinds of ways of connecting himself or herself. If it's Hatshepsut, so there, there are a few female kings who had obelisks. Well, there's one female king who had obelisks built, and that's Hatshepsut. Um, so it, it is a way of marking the kingship of, of the piece, um, marking the king with the obelisk, obelisk with the king, making that um, connection. So they are all different depending on the names of the king. And yet they're all quite repetitive in the kinds of things they show on them. But they're all just a giant phallic symbol, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the Egyptians never say that out yeah. right. Um, but. Self-explanatory. Yeah. Is, <laughs> is there any like blueprints for pyramids? Like, is there any explanation of how they came up with the shape or dimensions or anything like that. I mean, obviously there's other places in the world that were building pyramids. I mean, and there was no telephone or internet, you know, is it, is it strange to you that those symbols appear around the world? So um, you've asked three really good questions. Let me hit the first one. Is there any um, text that tells you how to build a pyramid? No, there's not. There is the Rind Mathematical Papyrus, Rind, for those of you who want to research this, R-H-I-N-D, Mathematical Papyrus, that shows you like how to get the volume of a pyramid. It's a Middle Kingdom text. So it's um, dated to around like 1800 BCE when smaller pyramids were being built. But they don't tell you how to do it. Um, I wouldn't, if I were an Egyptian king, give you a text for how to build a pyramid because that pyramid is proving my divinity. Mm -hmm. And have you ever been to Giza? Have you seen the great pyramids on no, the Giza plateau? I wish I haven't. So 
when you go someday and you stand in front of a 50-story man-made mountain of stone and you look up at Khufu's pyramid and you think, holy gods, there's, how is this possible? Aliens must have built it. Oh, my goodness. Then you are falling into exactly the propaganda trap that the kings want you to fall into. They want you to think they are otherworldly. They want you to think that they are beyond human. That is what the pyramid was for. It was to create that divinity of kingship again and again and again. That's why there are multi, there are hundreds of them on the Egyptian landscape associated and dedicated to kingship. So why do people expect there to be a blueprint for how the Great Pyramid of Khufu was made? That's his secret weapon. That's like giving out the the nuclear codes. That's like giving out, you know, here's how you make a nuclear bomb. Mm. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to find information for, data for very easily. Um, it's it's a state secret, in do, other words. Do you think they destroyed so, it afterwards, possibly? Because, I mean, wouldn't you have found something by now that would have... would have had calculations. They would have had to figure this stuff out. Mm. Um, the idea that they put things down on papyrus and then potentially destroyed it is possible. Or it's the kind of thing that you don't get to put in a tomb. You don't get to commemorate. You don't get to take it with you. So many of the texts that we have preserved are preserved because we have them from tombs. People are like, I'm going to bring this text with me, bring it into my burial chamber. And thus Egyptologists have that preserved. A pyramid architectural blueprint is not the kind of thing that the architect, Hemunu, architect of the Great Pyramid of Giza, got to bring with him into his tomb. Um, and and maybe they burned things like this. No idea. But it's not the kind of thing that you're going to let out. It's not the kind of thing you're going you're gonna to tell people about. Um, you had a really interesting um, last part. What was it to your question? Oh, I was just wondering because, I mean, the pyramid, you know, there's Aztec pyramids and, and pyramids oh, in yes. parts of the world. Yeah. So I actually did. You mentioned my Discovery Channel show mm -hmm. that's now like 15 years old at the top of your show called Out of Egypt. And I did a whole episode on pyramids around the world and why there are pyramids around the world with similar shapes. And it is called Shape of the Gods. So you can Google Karakuni Shape of the Gods and see me going to Mexico, going to Egypt, going mm -hmm. to um, uh I think, did I go to, I, I went to Cholula. Where else did I go for that one? We talk about Meso, Mesopotamian pyramids. Um, but anyway, wow. we were looking at pyramids all around the world and trying to figure out why they're built independently of one another because the Egyptians aren't like spreading the secret around um, it, with the same shape. And the conclusion is a pretty simple one that without steel, without rebar, without that kind of metal reinforcement and building, if you're building in stone or in earth, the only way to build up high and to connect to the heavens is to build wide at the base, narrower at the top as you go up. That's the way it's done. And that's why there's pyramids in Mexico in the New World and pyramids in Egypt in the Old World. And they're not connected in, in direct contact with each other at all. Um, and But I think in each case, the pyramid is there to show a ruler's ability to speak to the gods. He's the conduit. He's the one that can do it. And I ended that episode, that Discovery Channel episode, by getting in a helicopter and flying around the Burj Khalifa, a pyramidal-shaped skyscraper, the tallest building in the world, I think, still, in Dubai. And it is set there to show the power of these, the, this family in the United Arab Emirates 
to connect with um, the heavens and to build something taller than anybody else has ever done, to touch the sky. Um, th these are all ideological symbols wow. of masculine power. <laughs> to go back to our, our, our phallic <laughs> symbol. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, I don't know, thousands of years in the future, someone sees that what's left of New York City in these massive skyscrapers, they might have a similar similar questions and wonder, you know, what what the purpose was, how they did it. You don't subscribe at all to the ancient alien Eric Von Donegan, um, you know, Von Danigan. Von Danigan. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. Uh, does that sound like complete nonsense to you or? Um, I think that the Fondanikin theories get a lot of traction because um, I mean, one, I think yeah. people are attracted to this idea that there's something greater than we are and that the pyramids and the Egyptians might hold some sort of secret that will help us figure out our crazy lives and then maybe if there's some lost civilization of Atlantis or whatever and we find access to this, then we can save ourselves. I think that there's um, there's a, a desperation in, in a lot of that. I think for some people who read von Däniken, there's a glorified racism in it, in that the Egyptians couldn't have built their own pyramids, that you need people um, from outer space to come in and do it for them, or people from a Greek Atlantis to do it for them, um, which is far more racist. Um, but that's, that serves a certain kind of, or it scratches a particular itch that I think we see around the world today. Um, in the end, I think that the ancient aliens Fondanikin stuff speaks to people inherently understanding that these pyramids and obelisks were built for power and yet not being critical of the power, but instead wanting the power. And they worship that golden calf. They still worship that divinity. And all of that History Channel ancient alien stuff is a continual worship of that divinity. Hmm. Rather than rejecting it and saying, why do we still follow these, these divine kings? We just want to, we do want to follow the divine kings. We want to believe. And we want to think that somehow um, that, that power will, come, will trickle down to us. Um, trickle down uh religious ideology um i think it all yeah mm. <laughs> it, that that's what the fondanikin stuff um means to me i don't i used to laugh at it and roll my eyes and say oh my god how stupid people are but that i don't do that anymore because it's certainly not helpful number one and number two um it doesn't connect with people in in their own space when they see these pyramids and they're flummoxed by the power that they have over them um, even today, I want to connect with that. And that's of more interest to me. We human beings have simple short-term minds. We don't think in longer spans of time. It's hard for us to do so. It's useful to get the historian who's critical of these power structures or sees religion in a, in a different way because they work at doing so. And to have that kind of a person come in and break down why we are obsessed with pyramids and obelisks and other symbols of power, I think that's the way we need to go about it hmm. instead. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's still just mind-boggling for us now, right? The, the the weight of each stone and how they were cut so precisely and hauled, uh, you know, from the original quarries. Oh, oh no, no, make no mistake. 
We don't know how the Great Pyramid was built. We have no idea. Mm. You're going to place a stone every two minutes precisely according to cardinal directions that is less than a degree off, and you're going to get it exactly on point according, according to the stellar point. I mean, come on. We still have no idea. What they did was extraordinary. And instead of seeing that as a tool of power to maintain control within a society, um, to see that as some sort of metaphysical reality that is still, well, let's say, it, as I've said to some, and I have friends who do believe <laughs> that there are metaphysical um, underpinnings to the pyramids. Let's, let's assume for a minute that they're right, that pyramids were floating or the stones were floating through the air or something crazy. So you mean- they were playing, you know, through some sort of magic. Let's just hypothetically say that that's possible. If that's the case, that's not my divinity. That's mm. not, I'm not worshiping a divinity of power. I'm worshiping a divinity of love. And so if that's a divinity that people are attracted to and that's what they want to be a part of, then fine. But that's not my, that's not mine. So I would rather look at it with as jaundiced and as critical an eye as sure. I possibly can. Um, yeah, but there, I, I guess what you're saying, just so I understand, is some people believe that you, they could have moved the stones with their mind ultimately. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that people believe that these pyramids are power centers that that could move these things, and um, I do not. But um, some people do do believe this. But the, you know, I everyone is sending me another theory. I probably get one every month at least, a fully worked out theory of how the pyramids were built. Right. And somebody's got levers, and somebody's got this method, and somebody's got that method. I mean, my favorite theory that Egyptologists used to roll their eyes at and laugh at is Jean-Pierre Houdin, a French um, non-Egyptologist, an architect, who discusses how the pyramid stones were built outside in. So you create your your base, you level it off, you make sure you have a strong bedrock, you put your outer casing stones, or not casing stones, but your outer perimeter stones on first, and then you go into the inside of the pyramid and you build ramps within it so that you create a spiral inside of perimeter stones the whole way so you're always on an interior edge it makes more sense than a ramp that's a mile long going all the way out into the how are you going to get the stones up without people falling off the side of the ramp how come we've never found an earthwork that large archaeologically you would expect to find something like that and the coolest thing is that scans that have been done of the great pyramid from the top show that same from the top that same spiral design on the inside of the pyramid mm. and how cool is that the only way to prove it is you either do that muonology where you let over months and months the sun bombard the pyramids by placing certain sensors on the inside and outside of that pyramid space which has been done and has shown chambers that do exist above the grand gallery that have still not been open which is so cool i can't even so you can do that or you like take the pyramid apart stone by stone and who's going to do that Who's going to break up the, the last standing seventh wonder of the world? You're not going to do that. So there are all kinds of theories about how the pyramids were built. And I am content to, to let other people fight that battle. And I'll watch along from, from the sidelines. I just have two other questions on this. Um, if uh, The first one is, are there depictions of them building pyramids, the workers that build the pyramids? Would that give you any idea of how they could have possibly did it? 
as a first there's question. all kinds of oh yeah there's all kinds of information about how the pyramids were built practically in that there's all kinds of information that stones weren't floating through the air and people weren't moving them with their minds there's uh, a text, the oldest papyrus that has ever uh, been found in Egypt was just found in the at the Red Sea that is a ship's log of a man who was moving stones. And he has his quota and he's moving stones for the pyramid from a quarry to the pyramid site. And he's saying how many stones is moving and, and all of these things. So it's documented there. You also have on the stones themselves the notations by the architects which crew was moving the stones, how things were, were organized, are embedded in, the, in those texts on the stones themselves. Hmm. So even though the Great Pyramid doesn't have within it any sorts of inscriptions in the, in the burial chamber of the king, that doesn't mean there's not all kinds of information encoded circumstantially such that we can say real people built it, they weren't built by slaves, they were built by draft labor. If you didn't report to your draft, they put your whole family in jail but they would feed you bread and beer. There was a skilled labor force. There was an unskilled labor force. Skilled labor force got nice tombs and houses. Unskilled labor force brought in seasonally, put back into the peasant field seasonally. Um, all kinds of things that we can say about building pyramids from the documentation that's there, but we don't know exactly how it was done. And that's exactly how the ancient Egyptian kings wanted. would have wanted it. And it seems one to keep it still. So there seems to be a lot or a decent amount of evidence that proves that it was they were built in very practical ways or yeah. kind of. Yes, practical. by real people, yeah. by real Egyptian people. And for those, um, there's been a lot of discussion lately about whether or not the pyramids were built by slaves and the pyramids were not built by slaves uh, from Israel or any other place in West Asia. They were built by Egyptians. And the reason is that Egypt, while they did have slaves within their society and every civilization within the ancient world had slaves, um, right or wrong, this is the reality. The pyramids weren't built by slaves. The Egyptians, with all the grain and all the beer and all the easy farming, had enough of a population to be able to exploit their own people to such a degree that they could build a 50-story mountain of stone over 20-something years. Hmm. Have you? I'm sure you have heard the theory, but what do you think of the theory that if you put like different, um, like oxygen in one side and another chemical on the other side, it's like a beam of energy shoots out the gold cap of the pyramid? Have you? Heard there's that? so many. Yeah. Other, there's so many theories about the pyramids as energy spaces. Um, I don't um, subscribe to any of them, but I will tell you this: I was in the Great Pyramid once when a new age uh, group was in there, people who believe in ancient Egyptian religion is a real thing. And I was in there on my own and, and they were chanting and to hear that chanting in that granite space with the four walls of granite and the ceiling and the floor of granite. And you're surrounded in that cube of granite. The acoustics are insane. The sound is insane. Um, it was crafted for a ritual perfection. And I can understand that people believe that there's some sort of special power to this place because when you're in there, you feel it. But people manufacture temples and tombs to create power over people all the time. Just think of the last time that 
you were at an NFL game and the, the F-16s flew over and then the, the veteran came running on the field, met his family for the first time and you start crying and there the state is made honorable in your eyes and you're like, oh my God, I love to be an American. This is an, an amazing thing. And you have just been brought with an ideological, uh, with ideological tools into the embrace of your state and its power over you. That is what, in my, I'm a social historian. This is what I do. I am pulling the veils aside from all of this stuff that's being built to convince us of certain realities. And I'm not saying that the pyramids didn't have power, don't still have power over people. But again, that's not, it's not my divinity. Mm. Um, and I, I'd rather look at it with a bit of a side eye than not. And you can imagine me at an NFL game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's that's... like an imperial cult in my mind. <laughs> exactly the same. No, I, I think you, I mean, people should think critically and, you know, a lot of those ideas are like sexy to believe or just to, to kind of take at face value. But yeah, it's um, really important to dig a little bit deeper. How much do you think is not discovered in ancient Egypt and how much is left to be discovered? Like I heard something that there's like a library possibly under the Sphinx or something like that. I think that finding a library under the Sphinx is unlikely, but what's been found on the Giza Plateau right near the Sphinx is pretty extraordinary. There's this um, thing called an Osirion. What is that? that? It, um, it's, and I've seen this on camera. I've never been in myself and maybe someday I'll get to go, but it's this deep shaft that's meters and meters long. I don't know, like 20 meters down. I, I have to check. And then it goes down into a chamber and then another shaft and then into another chamber and it hits groundwater. Wow. And there's this room that's filled with water and in the middle of it is the stone sarcophagus. What? Yes. When was that? Right there. That was found recently? Thanks. Yeah. Wow. Is that your library? I mean, maybe. Hmm. Is it meant to reach divinity itself, like go into the underworld and connect to the source of all life and everything? The Nile? Yes. Um, is it a crazy, kooky, mystical place? Absolutely. Um, but will there be any papyrus rolls found in there? Uh, I'm not so sure. Mm. Um, now, as to your other question, how much is left to be discovered in Egypt? Well, I can't answer because I don't know until sure. it's been discovered. But Egypt is this wonderful place that preserves. The desert sands preserve. But Egypt is also this wonderful place that support, supports and, and can sustain an incredibly large population and populations destroy. Um, people and their urban expanses are always destroying things. That's what humans do, right? They don't care about the dead people. They care about the world of the living. So you're dealing with a bit of a race, right? As Egypt goes to 100 million people and beyond, it is making the desert green and it is building in places that it did not previously build. Things are being discovered. Things are then being sold on the art market. Please, anybody listening to this or watching this, don't buy antiquities. It's not, it's not um, useful for anybody. And if the market stopped, then that would solve a lot of problems. Antiquities are used for gun trades, human trafficking, drug trades, all kinds of crazy weapons deals because antiquities can be money laundering for all of that. So do avoid it. But things are coming up out of the ground all the time. Um, in private hands, sometimes in, in state sponsored excavations. And I think that there's potentially even a tomb in the Valley of the Kings still to find. Hmm. There's things underneath temples yet to find. 
I think um, it'll be less about golden treasures and the tomb of Cleopatra and more about um, things we don't expect. A tomb here or there, a coffin here or there, a beautiful painted um, uh, temple wall that's dismantled and the foundation stones turned over of a temple that people thought to look at. Um, those kinds of things. I think there's a lot more to be found. Is that a, a, a big concern of people finding things first that are not archaeologists and rating them? It's always a concern yeah. anywhere where people live amongst antiquity. So if you know anybody who lives in Lebanon or who lives in Rome or who lives in Greece or who lives um, in, in middle America near pyramid sites there, um, there are all kinds of places where people live amongst antiquities. And I was in Rome once and there's a catacomb in the guy's backyard. And it's his personal catacomb. Wow. You can't take everything that's ancient yeah. and lock it under under a key. It can't be done. Um, people have their own private property. If you go to Britain and you're a farmer, you're going to find Roman coins if you're in the South all the time. That's normal. If you're in the North, you're going to find Viking sites all the time. Hell, if you're in Nova Scotia, you could find some Viking sites, right? So antiquity is all around us. And that's why so many of the archaeologists that we train at UCLA end up working for private companies who, before you build a shopping mall or a Walmart, will do an archaeological uh, examination to see what sites are going to be destroyed uh, before you build this thing. What can be documented? What can we do? And that's why building, and just down the street from me in Mar Vista in LA, they're putting up this new farmer's market, uh, you know, inspired by Fairfax kind of thing. And we were at the coffee shop and met the archaeologist. They're like, oh, yeah, we found this Native American thing, that Native American yeah. thing. I mean, there's always antiquity to destroy. Right. There's always something that human, human beings have made to, dest to destroy. Um, it's something we just want to keep a lookout for. Um, as human beings approach 8, build uh, 8 billion people on this planet, uh, to be honest, I'm less interested in all of the stuff that humans have made in protecting it this may sound strange from an archaeologist, but more interested in protecting animals, species, wildlife, um, untouched natural expanses. Are there any of those left? If we don't protect those things, we as a human species are lost. And so I, it's funny, when I was younger, I'm like, how dare they do that? It belongs in a museum. And yes, I still feel that way. Yeah. But my passion goes more for the species about to go extinct mm. or the fact that there aren't enough insects on our windshields the way there were in the 70s when I grew up compared to whether or not a coffin is sold on the market. It's just a, in, in the end, which is more important is my, as I tell my 10-year-old son, what's more important, people or things? And I will always err on the side of people. Definitely. This might be a silly question, but do you think that there's any validity to like uh, bad karma or being jinxed for the people that like break the seals of the tombs? It's kind of like a a, um, a wild tale, right? That that people tell. Yeah, I mean, I think most people watching this probably believe in ghosts or have some connection with uh, an ancestor, a loved one that's gone to the other side with whom they have somehow communicated, had a dream, seen them in some way, um, made a connection. I think that more people believe something than not, whether you are religious or not. I think that we connect with the other side. That's what human beings do. We connect with our ancestors. And I think that as long as you have respect 
for those ancestors. And you're not going in to steal and loot um, to destroy, but you're there to put things to rights with respect, then I think it's okay. I also think, and I'm, again, I, I do believe in ancestors connecting. I do personally. Um, I think that when I'm working in a tomb and there are dead people right in front of me, and this has happened to me, I will reach out and say hi and say, I'm here just to study. I'm not here to destroy. I'm here to, to put things back the way they were and to make sure that you're recorded. I suspect that if I'm a real believer in ancestors and ghosts and dead people and I were getting quite metaphysical, if it were me, I first of all, wouldn't still want to be hanging around in that tomb. I hope I've moved on to some other place and I'm not still trapped in the earthly plane. Um, That means I'm not in a very happy place. Um, And second, if I were, then I don't think I would care so much about all of that physicality and all of that stuff and my body, 2000 years old. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So curses and stuff like that. I think, um, the curse for the tomb of Tutankhamun was finding something that people couldn't look away from. It was the exclusives of the Times of London. It was the fame that it gave to Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon. It was the scrutiny that of everyone being put under a microscope. I think that was the curse. And I think the stress of that was what really harmed the family of, well, Carter himself and then the family of Lord Carnarvon. Um, I don't think it was a, a king rising up from, from the ashes. And what I will say is, again, as a social historian, if you as a king or an elite person are going to bury yourself encrusted in gold and you're surprised that people are going to come into your tomb, <laughs> take your stuff, yeah. look at it and put it in a museum and everyone's going to wait in line to see it. I'm sorry. Why? Why are you surprised? You made it out of gold so you could show off your bling and display your social prominence to the world. You have to expect that to continue to work on the simple human mind 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years after the fact. So if that's the way you're going to bury yourself, get ready to be dug up. You had it coming. So I think that the karma in many ways is that if you bury yourself that way, you need to expect to get dug up. What, uh, what happened to those archaeologists again who found his tomb? They 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 did meet some kind of tragic end, right? There was uh... Lord Martin, um, just a a few months after the tomb was found, cut himself shaving with a straight razor. Uh, it was apparently a mosquito bite, and his straight razor went over it, and then he got uh, blood poisoning. So the story goes. Oh my God. Of course, this is in the twenties, so who knows exactly what it was? He yeah. was already in ill health. And, and then he died shortly thereafter. And then there's the story of the dead bird that died at the exact moment that Carnarvon died. Um, but Carter, the man who entered that tomb first, he didn't, he, he lived to a reasonably ripe old age and, and nothing untoward happened to him, but he died alone and rather friendless without very many people at his funeral. And, um, that to me seems like the worst kind of, yeah. uh, uh, end point for, for any human being. So the mummification process is so extraordinary. And these, I mean, when you find uh, a body, how would you describe the condition that it's in for being 3000 plus years old? 
Well, it depends on the body. Some bodies are badly mummified in that their organs are not removed, but they're desiccated. So if you take a body and you don't remove the intestines and the liver and the lungs and the stomach and you leave all of that in, but you put that body in a natron packed environment, salts that are going to pull the moisture out, you're going to do a semi mummification. Those bodies smell pretty bad. Um, there's no way around it. And I've been exposed to a lot of those bodies. So it's kind of like your, you know, your lower elite sort of mummification. In, in other cases, when, the, when a mummy is well done, <laughs> they remove those four organs, stomach, liver, intestines, and lungs. They remove the brain. They desiccate it. They put resins all over. There is still this musty smell. And there's a carbonization that's associated with it. It, it it's, um, smells kind of like something's been burnt. But it, it doesn't smell like a, an active rotting, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that gross. So, you know, I work with coffins all the time. There are very often mummies inside of those coffins and you know it, if you're opening a case in the museum, you'll know immediately if there's a mummy inside. And then in Cairo, you know, I'll be there with the guys and they take the case down and we're speaking in Egyptian Arabic and then they're bringing it down and I, and they were like, Oh, see mummia. There's a mummy inside. You smell it immediately. Hmm. Uh, is so it rancid? It's it's overpowering, disgusting smell. It's not disgusting. It's strong, um, but it's something that can't. You know, it's not like seeing a body from a body farm or seeing a murder victim that's been in a house for a month. It's mm. nothing like that. Mm. Or seeing a dead animal in a canal. It's not like that. Um, it doesn't smell good. It's something that the human body naturally is repelled against. Mm -hmm. But it's not. Um, it's not the most horrible thing on the face of the planet. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember learning in like, you know, elementary school or junior high or whatever about how the brain was not important and they would remove it through the nose. And I just remember being kind of like not scarred, but like that always just stuck with me that they took like a like a hanger. Right. And like took the yeah. brain out through the nose. But the brain, you know, it's since been proven to be like one of the most important um, parts of the body. Do you know, is there any explanation of why they think it's not important? The heart is really the, the thing that drives the body. So I think this whole brain thing is overblown in that the Egyptians thought it wasn't important. And I read this when you see things written about, um, mummification, especially when it's written for children. And I think it's a, it's a problematic thing because it's another way of primitivizing the ancient Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't know that the brain was important. They thought you thought in your heart, stupid, stupid Egyptians. <laughs> and I think the Egyptians were much smarter than that. Mm -hmm. I think that the Egyptians knew the heart had to remain because think of when you're worried or angry or upset, your heart starts to beat fast, you know, or you're in love, you know, something, this is where you feel it. The heart is the seat of your personality, your emotionality, all of these things. That's that's super important. The brain was not just discarded. And here's the thing. How are you ever going to identify a brain when you find one? <laughs> Especially when you're pulling it out, like you said, with the hanger yeah. after breaking the ethmoid bone in the back. And you're fishing it out bit by bit. What Egyptologists have found are these things they call embalming caches. They, or there's, um, well, let me get to the embalming cache. So there's like, there are little mini tombs over to the side that have a whole lot of natron bags, these little packets with this salt in it that is used to desiccate the body and preserve and make the mummy. And other, it seems bits of, of um, the detritus of mummification. 
why could there not be a dissolved brain there? The brain is all fat and cholesterol. It's not something that even the desert is really going to preserve. You're not going to get it out in one piece. If you leave it in the head, it's going to rot your face. So you can't leave it in the head, but you can't just throw it away. None of the things, it seems, that were used to embalm a person in ancient Egypt, at least a high elite person, were discarded and thrown away. Right. You kept them all. And the things that couldn't be maintained as an organ, like a lung or a pair of lungs or a liver that can keep together when you, when you desiccate it. The brain, you can't really do that to. It's just this gross, fatty stuff. You're still going to collect it. And there's this really cool thing, you guys can Google this, called the Tekenu. T-E-K-E-N-U. And it's this weird bundle of we don't know what uh -huh. with a human head on it put on a sled. And they pull this tekanu of this human-headed bundle after the mummy is brought in. So the mummy of super rich guy and his coffins is displayed in front of the people in the funeral. And then the tekanu is brought next. This weird bundle that they have a human head on on a little sled and they pull that through the desert next. What the hell is this tekanu? Nobody knows. Any it's this human head? It's not a. It's not a. The person obviously it's not their head, human, but but it's it's idealized. All of these things are idealized. They're not going to show it as a portrait. Uh -huh. So it's going to be just a human head. So if you have a human-headed bundle, I'm going with any detritus of death that couldn't be put into the mummy or on the mummy. All of those natron bags, the brain fluids, all that gross stuff. You know, anything like that. They just kind of collect it together, bundle it up because it is still a part of the body that if the, the deceased is called, could wake up. You don't want that shit lying around. <laughs> That's a problem. So you bundle that up. You put the head on it. You put it on the sled. You bring that into the tomb. The thing is, is those bundles seem to have been buried separate from the tomb itself and have never been found. No tekanu has ever been found in a burial chamber is what I'm saying. It seems that they took that bundle and buried it somewhere next to the tomb. And that could have been your means of, of disposing safely and responsibly, like nuclear waste, the brain. Hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't like this idea that the brain was considered not valuable or they didn't understand. It. I mean, no, you can't feel with, but you, you know, people are, they may not know exactly what the brain does, but when you get a headache, or, you know, the, you still feel things here. Um, you can see clear-headedly or, you know, the Egyptians could, they, they had all the turning your face towards me. Pay attention is turn your face to me. Um, there's all kinds of things that you feel with your head. So I doubt they just threw that stuff away. But where it goes, I don't know. So the brain wasn't put in formaldehyde as well? They didn't keep the... Well, they put anything in formaldehyde. They put everything in natron salts. Oh, natron, okay. Mm -hmm. N-A-T-R-O-N. It's from uh, the Wadi Natrun. And it's a salt that if you ate it, you would die. Uh. Uh, but it's salt that that desiccates very quickly and, and preserves and is an anti-insecticide and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I suspect that they put the brain in uh, a natron kind of solution and then it would have just shriveled that fat up into tiny little pieces mm. that, that nobody's identified. You know, the archaeology over the last 10 years has gotten more chemically able, but we haven't seen this with Egyptology yet. You don't see a whole lot of chemical analysis of the things that you find in a tomb to see where there's organic material, where it's human remains, where it's not. Um, because we're so overwhelmed with the materials that we're finding, we're not testing every little last thing for this chemical, that chemical, the other chemical. Mm. 
it would be very useful to go into museums in which embalming caches have been found, bundles have been found, and try to do some more analysis, DNA analysis, then, though it's probably going to be contaminated if it's not encased in a molar, for example. Um, but some sort of chemical analysis to see if it's organic, what kind of organic, and 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 maybe do more more analysis, uh, scientific analysis with the, with that kind of embalming material. Yeah, the, the the burial practices are so interesting to me. I mean, I know that they were that the pharaohs were buried with their possessions. They thought that they could take them with them, and also the the uh, the importance of the heart. But in the Book of the Dead, right, the the heart is weighed. That's one of the things that they um, believed that to see if you were a good person or not, they put the heart on the scale. And um, is it called a scarab that they covered the the heart with so you could uh, kind of hide, I guess, the bad things that you, you've done in your life? I, I mean, yeah, the heart scarab is a really interesting one. I wouldn't think of it as a cheat, though many <laughs> people do. Right. Um, if you're going to think of it as a cheat, then I would think of a baptism or last rites as a cheat because it does the same thing. So again, we come back to being Roman Catholic. If you're dying, priest comes rushing over, gives you last rites. You have a new baptism in a sense. You for, you get forgiveness for all of your sins. And with those last rites, you go into the, the next world, whatever that is, completely pure. This is the same thing. Um, there are things like this all over the world independently created um, from one another. And the heart scarab actually says, Oh, heart of my mother, oh, heart of my mother, do not speak against me in the hall of judgment. And so you're reaching out in the same way that James Floyd did before he died to his mother. Mm. You reach out to your mother and your mother is what brought you into this world. And your mother is what you connect with when you leave the world. And the thing that you put on that scarab and on your heart that cleanses you is your mother which is amazing. It's perfect. Like think of your mother, you know, she's the one that slaps your hand when you do something wrong and then, you know, strokes your head when you get it right. And she's the one that will always forgive you just about. Right. So when you're dying, you reach out to that mother, Oh, heart of my mother, Oh, heart of my mother, do not, do not speak against me in the halls of judgment. And your mother is there to purify you, to cleanse you. So it's not that, um, you know, it's again, I think that's another way of primitivizing the ancient Egyptians and saying, oh, they're so superstitious or, oh, they thought they could get away with anything. We get away with shit all the time, too. We just um, call it a last rites or we call it a, a you know, um, taking Jesus into our heart or wh whatever evangelicals might call a, a baptism at adulthood or a second baptism in the River Jordan, whatever. But we all do it. And and that's what I would think of for the heart scarab. Yeah, and it's a feather, right? That's weighed against the feather, and if it's heavier than the feather, you go to basically to hell. And if it's equal or lighter than the feather, you get to pass into heaven. Yeah, the the scales are interesting because then there's an understanding that you must be true. So instead of it being about necessarily what you've done, it's about the truth of what you're going in with, and if you've been purified then have you done so with an authenticity of your heart? I don't think the Egyptians would ever be so simplistic as to believe that you could go in as a complete a-hole and get away with it. You have to go in with an authenticity of, I messed up or I will try it. You know, so then your heart is authentic and it is, it is true. And when you weigh it, 
against that thing that can see right through you like a laser, like your mother can. I interrogate my son all the time. I'm very good at it. You know, he's like, mom, how do you know? I'm like, mm, I, I know. just know. I just, well, you mamas can figure things out. Um, good mamas, right? So in a way you can think of that ma'at, that truth, as that means of sussing out what's, what's going on. And it's no mistake that she's depicted as a female in some cases with that ostrich feather on her head that depicts that truth. Um, and, and if you don't pass, yeah, you get eaten by a female divinity. It's also female mm -hmm. named Amet, and her name means the devourer. Mm -hmm. And she is part lion, part crocodile, and part hippo, fearsome to behold. And you take all of those negative things, but you use them to serve the power structure by saying that, look, if you, if you guys don't go along with this, this moral system that we've created, you will have nothing. You won't even have an afterlife in the, in hell. You mm. have non-existence. You, you just get none. like obliterated. There are notions of hell in ancient Egyptian underworld books of people that are constantly on fire. And this idea of hell is a pit of fire. I think doesn't necessarily have to be ancient Egyptian. I think that's something that all kinds of people could come up with. What's the worst thing you could imagine, you know, forever existence in a pit of fire. But um, the Egyptians are the ones who depicted it first, that kind of hell. Uh, just lastly, as we're wrapping up, like the scarab is, is, is it, in, it looks like a beetle or something. Is it in the shape of some kind of animal or is it, is it that shape for a reason? Well, the reason we call it a, a heart scarab is because it's in the shape of the scarab beetle, scaraboid, oh. scarab, the, the Greek. Oh. Um, and it, that beetle is a dung beetle. And it is a, a beetle that the Egyptians associated with the sun God himself and not just any aspect of the sun God but the sun god who had just been reborn. And in ancient Egyptian, the symbol of the beetle, so that, that beetle and then you get the little thing in the, the little um, legs, it means hepper to come into being. So the ancient Egyptian is hepper and we translate it in English as to come into being, to be reborn, to be remade, to be resurrected, um, to come again, to repeat. Um, repeat maybe is a bit much, but to... To come into being is the best the best way of describing it. And the Egyptians understood the newborn sun on the eastern horizon, the dawn sun, as Kepri, the one who has just come into being, who has just manifested his new self. And so to place a beetle on the heart is to do the same with the dead. It is, um, it is to create the future manifestation of the dead person alive again and to make that a reality. So by putting that beetle on the heart of the human being, you are automatically making them come into being again. You are giving them that hall pass to, to come back uh, in, into this world and into the, um, the realm of the underworld as well. So I, I'm sorry, but is there is it a form of reincarnation or is it just heaven? Would you, would you come back to earth or is that not unknown or? I think reincarnation is too much. The Egyptians don't have an understanding that you come back to this earth again and again, die and come back, die and come back. No, you would go to, um, the, the divinities do that though, right? So the sun god, Osiris, they die and come back, die and come back. But the dead, when they go to the field of reeds or they go to the, the good parts of the underworld, they turn into birds and those birds can leave and go to the world of the living and then come back to the underworld. And the Egyptians understood 
the ancient Egyptians understood the the joyful flight of starling birds as the dead frolicking before the sun sets and they have to go back into the land of the dead. So the Egyptians believed that the ancestors visited this world all the time, that they could come back and visit their loved ones, visit their family members, and then go back into the realm of the dead. So it's not a reincarnation, but there is a cyclical return to the tomb. Sort of like an angel? Would you call it an angel maybe? I like angel. I think that's great. The Egyptians called them Ahu. And Ah is one of the grateful dead to use the grateful. I mean, yeah. (laughs) The band. Um, Or one of the effective ones. They're the dead who have been made effective. They've been activated. They've been given their superpowers. They've passed to the other side. Their heart has been weighed. They, They are now like superheroes who can come back. And when your crop fails or the police are mad at you or something bad has happened, you call upon your ancestors. You sit before the ancestor bust you pray to them and they can come and, and help you in a difficult situation. Wow. Um, I'm sorry. Just one, one last, absolutely last thing. I, it, it just, the, uh, it, the image is kind of burned into my mind of them doing um, this embalming, but they wear the masks when they do the embalming. And I just have this vision of the mask and the cutting open of the body and doing the thing. And it's, it's just kind of, uh, I guess it's a little disturbing, but really intriguing too, how they, why this, this whole ceremony of the embalming. Yeah, I mean, I think, okay, so I also did a Discovery Channel, my my Out of Egypt thing. I also did a whole episode on disposal of the dead. Why some people cremate, why some people bury, why some people embalm, why Egypt mummify, right? And so much of why people treat their dead in certain ways is based on the geography that they live in. Egypt is a desert place. The only reason that there is agriculture as rich as there is is because that Nile River carves a channel through it. It is the largest oasis on the planet, but it is a desert expanse. So if you bury your dead, they are preserved if you put them directly into the desert sands, even without mummification. Mummification came about because people wanted to show off fancy stuff like coffins. Then you're not putting the dead body, the naked dead body directly into the desert sands. It's not going to get naturally embalmed anymore with that desiccation. So you have a problem. So now you have to manufacture an embalming that was provided for you by your geography before. So you can have a fancy coffin, right? So the rich people invented this embalming. Now, the so it's because of geography that the Egyptians connect with their dead through a physical reality of preserving the body. If you grew up in a place like Bangladesh, then your connection with the dead would almost certainly not be in that way because it's so wet. There's nothing that's going to be preserved. So you're going to have secondary burial. You're going to cremate the dead. You're going to get rid of the dead as quickly as possible. You don't have any place to bury them even. But in a place like Germany, you bury the dead. You've got a whole lot of land, put them in the ground, have a nice, you know, cemetery of some kind, you bury them. That's fine. Geography is everything. So geography determines for the Egyptians that you get this forever life in a body. And when the Egyptians manufactured this embalming that they had been given naturally by their geography, they had to make it a God-given thing. So that when they did certain actions on the body that are harmful, like cutting it in a certain place, making an incision, sticking that thing in the nose and breaking the bone back here and pulling the brain out and doing rough things to the body, They have to do so in the name of good, 
So putting on a mask and being a divinity in that moment is going to to help them to to deal with some of those very invasive things that they're doing to that human body. Um, you can't get more invasive than than making a tiny incision like this and then shoving your hand into it, pulling all the intestines out, yeah. getting the stomach along the way, your liver. How are you going to get those lungs out? Your hands like way up in there and you got to disconnect the things and then pull that lung out of that. I mean, oh my God. Yeah. It, the reality of it, the practical reality of it must have been beyond disgusting. And any embalming space, you know, you want to shield other people from actually seeing what's going inside, sure. going on inside of that place. But what goes in is a dead body. And what comes out is this beautifully wrapped, perfected, idealized, non-smelly entity with which you can connect. There's your ah, there's your effective dead. And when you put that, that new transformed physical reality into a burial chamber and you stand above that burial chamber and you give prayer and you give offerings to that dead person, that dead person is believed in the Egyptian mind to, to be more able to connect with you, to give you more what you want, to be preserved for more generations, um, not to break down, to, to become a divinity. Remember the first mummy dismembered by his brother Seth, but then all the pieces brought back together and wrapped up. That's Osiris. And so every time the dead is turned into a wrapped thing, the dead person becomes Osiris himself. And that's why on every coffin that the Egyptians produced until very late is called Osiris whoever. So if I had a coffin in the ancient Egyptian world, I would be Osiris Kara. Maybe you'd put my title in there. Osiris Professor of Ancient Egypt, Kara, you know, and then you you have my whole my whole title in there. But even as a woman, I need to be Osiris because I am that mummy. I am now the divinity that that can perform miracles for my own loved ones. Wow. I just want to say quickly, um, because maybe people aren't familiar with it, the mask, though, is a wolf, right? They wear this wolf mask. Is it a wolf? It's or? Anubis. So you're thinking of Anubis, and it's a jackal. Jackal. And the jackal is a scavenger that roams the desert looking for anything dead that it can find, a dead bird, a dead mammal. If there's a dead human, I'm sure the jackal would eat it. The jackal is responsible for ruining that natural preservation that the uh -huh. desert can provide in reality. So typically Egyptian to take that animal, put its head on a human body and make that divinity responsible for the preservation of the dead human body. Because Anubis uh, is the God of mummification. He's the God of embalming and the preservation of that body in eternity. Wow. This was such an amazing conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time. This is such a fascinating topic to me, and I could talk about it like all day. Is there anything that you're working on now that you wanted to mention quick, or you could tell us about uh, just lastly? And um, yeah, where could people you know check out your work and your books? And yeah, um, I my last book came out with National Geographic Books, and it's called When Women Ruled the World. And I have this. Um, side gig as a, as a feminist Egyptologist, which is, which is pretty fun. So I talk about um, the patriarchy and how female rule serves the patriarchy and people get upset and say oh, their book doesn't make them feel hopeful about the future. And I say, I'm not here to write revisionist history. I'm here to tell it as it was. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't see it as it was, we can't change the future. Uh, my next book will be called The Good Kings, I think. 
And it's also going to be with Nat Geo Books. And it's going to be about authoritarianism and looking at ancient Egypt through the lens of authoritarianism. And I think as more nation states on the planet today, and even in democratic systems, more voters turn towards authoritarianism, I think it will be useful to, to see how and why they do that and how the Egyptians did it in such a way to make people not even realize that it was authoritarianism even when it was happening before their eyes. Uh, if you can sell yourself and your divine kingship that well so that people don't even see you as a despot, you're doing something right. And I want to know how, how people do that today and what the ancient Egyptians can t teach us about those people on our planet who are trying to sell themselves as the good despots. Because again, I must cast my jaundiced side eye in, in their direction. So those are the things that, that I am working on now. Awesome. And, and uh, I'm sorry, what was your website? Yeah, just put in Karakuni, K-A-R-N, and the last name with a C, and you'll find my Squarespace, and I'm on all the social medias. I've got the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram. I have to improve at the Instagram. I'm not, even though I'm an art historian, yeah. I'm not as visual, Ditto. and I'm more verbal. Um, so I have a lot on Twitter and a lot on Facebook. And I, I started a YouTube channel. So I have a lot of videos in which, you know, when I somebody asks me a question, I'm like, oh, I wonder why that is. Or as we're talking about authoritarianism, or we're talking about taking down Jim Crow statues. Uh, and people are like, well, then if you're going to do that, then take down Egyptian statues. Mm. And I'm like, huh, that's a throwdown. And so I, I'll sit down for 20 minutes and talk about it. So I, I take my, my um, educating self as a UCLA professor, and I put it on YouTube. And so you can watch those uh, videos as well. Awesome. Uh, Professor Cooney, was there anything that we missed that you think we should have like touched on or talked about that we kind of glanced over? Or I know there's so much to talk about. You can't really do it in this short time, but you know. No, you hit on so many different things. And you know what? Your questions were great. So we Thank got you. to go to the Roman Catholic Church. We got to go to Eric von Daniken and Pyramid Power. And we got to talk about um, obelisks and how they're still used today. I think you hit upon some, some really good points. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. My pleasure. You take care. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Peace out, Transmodians.